Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of But Why, the podcast that's all about digging into big questions and tricky topics via honest conversations. This week we're going to be looking at war. Today I'm talking to Taban Shoresh, a former child genocide survivor. Taban is the founder of Lotus Flower, a non-profit that supports women conflict survivors and refugees in Kurdistan, Iraq. With a political activist father during the Saddam Hussein's regime, Taban was imprisoned with her family aged just four and they narrowly escaped being buried alive. After a year of dodging bullets and bombs, they were finally flown to the UK by Amnesty to start a new life. Then, in 2016, Taban decided to give up her successful City of London career and establish the Lotus Flower. It now supports women and girls who have lost everything in the hands of ISIS, including their homes and loved ones, and who, are also su- who have also suffered barbaric crimes such as slavery, rape and torture. I mean, I'm just saying those words because they're the, they're the way I want to introduce it. And then you have to try and for a minute absorb the actual reality of all of that. And it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. It really is. I've, I mean, I want to go straight into it, but also I do like to start with three more lighthearted questions and then we'll go into it, if that's okay. okay. With you. Yeah. Three, three more relaxed ones. How are you really? What star sign are you? And what are your favourite crisps? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> I that God, oh, wow. They're, how be- am I really? I'm not sure that's going to start off with a light note. Um, I've just come out of surgery, so I'm trying to kind of get my head around that. And um, my disease has come back. So um, I'm okay, considering uh, health reasons. But the second question was, I'm a Capricorn. Are you? I think I, I do fit a Capricorn star sign. Um, kind of Capricorn. And my favourite crisps, oh, it's got to be spicy knickknacks. I mean, it's a classic, a retro that, classic. That's, yeah. It just takes me back to secondary school days. Mm. That's all I had. Yeah. I mean, they can't be much good about them, really, if you think about everything. <laughs> but they, they're they iconic, aren't they? An iconic crisp. They are. They're lovely. Um, how recently was your surgery? Um, so I've got Crohn's disease mm. and um, I've been in relapse for a few years now. And last year I had about five surgeries. Uh, the wow. last major one was in December. So I'm just about coming around from that. But I've just found out that it's decided to attack my small bowel. So <sighs> trying to kind of get my head around that because they took my large bowel out. So wow. I'm like, OK, we can do this to bad. Every every time you think you've kind of got somewhere, you're you've got to go again. Yeah, actually, I think like bringing it back to my experiences and war and everything. I, for me, I I genuinely and truly believe that you know all the trauma that I've experienced in life has somehow trapped itself in my body mm. and manifested itself into a physical illness. And for mm. me, like you know, especially around your stomach area that's where you hold all your emotions mm-hmm. and so it, it's it's interesting that that part of my body is being attacked because I do see the correlation between the two mm. I was in fact having this exact conversation last night with my husband I've been learning a lot about gut health and also I did a load of therapy which is EMDR therapy which exactly trying to sh- yeah. share shift things but um there's that very famous book the body the body keeps the score yeah and it and 
on the one hand, it sounds really woo-woo, but on the other, of course, of course, things show up this way. And actually, I've been wearing a glucose monitor for the last month and trying to work out what, what my body likes eating. And um, I was so surprised to see how stress showed up in glucose. It, quite literally, I could see the point when I'm trying to get my kids in a car, you know, not not true stress, just acute, like something. And it, and that is like surging through my body and yeah. you know this is on such a mi- mi- minor scale so yeah I'm yeah. sure you're it's hard not to think that or to, to at least explore the idea in your mind I suppose yeah yeah it goes back to the vagus nerve as well that's one thing you need to research yeah we kind of we've got like the vagus nerve that runs from the top to the bottom and it runs through all the organs and when that's off balance that's when you kind of start feeling things and actually you can you can stimulate or activate or you know neutralize the vagus nerve naturally through lots of different things like breath work mm. uh, meditation or just slowing down and you know ear massages there's lots of natural things that you can do to try and um calm the nervous system down but yeah I'm, I think my illness is very much to do with um stress levels your trauma and your trauma I mean this is where I was going to go at such a young age before you know possibly how to rationally work through trauma you're it's inhabiting your body so tell me about the earliest memories of your childhood I suppose so I guess in terms of my childhood my um I was born into the Iran Iraq war so I'm Kurdish I'm from northern Iraq and I was born into that region, into a war, um, and that was between Iran and Iraq that was going on. And then on top of that, because we're Kurdish and the Kurds were oppressed by all the regions that Kurds resided in, um, we we were targeted because my dad was a political activist. He was also a Peshmerga, so he was a freedom fighter. Um, He also was a poet. And at that time, his poems were invoking people to uprise. And so he was on the most wanted list, not only for carrying a gun, but also carrying a pen. Mm. So the way that they would capture these families was that uh, these men was was by capturing the families. Um, I don't remember like my childhood days. I don't remember our dad being with us a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at one point, my mom tells me a story where He'd come back from the mountains and carried me and said, whose child is this? Didn't realize really? it was his child. So he never really spent a lot of time at home. They were always fighting part of the cause um, and away from the family. And so we didn't really spend a lot of time together as a family. It was mainly my mum bringing us up as a single parent. She was working at the time. Um, and actually, so when she was working you know, in offices, you would have secret police. So if she would take too much time off, they would interrogate her to find out why and where she'd been. And the time that she would take off is actually when she would go and visit my dad um, secretly. And she'd had enough of this and just decided, right, I've had enough, I need to leave. I can't be interrogated after each time I leave work or take time off. Mm -hmm. So she left and the day after... um, there was, I was playing in my grandma's garden and there was a massive knock on the door and like the garden gates and it like startled me because it, the rattling on the concrete mm-hmm. and I, I froze and waited for an adult to come out and as soon as I saw my uncle go out to the gates to try and open the door, I ran to him like, like a child would run to an adult for safety. Mm-hmm. So I just ran to him but thought actually it might be family. So let's see who's, who's come around. So I stood in front of him and as he opened the gate, um, there stood like two Iraqi soldiers and they asked for my mum. And at this point, my uncle knew why they'd come because, mm. it, you know, this this is something that they were doing to people. He tried to deter them by saying, oh, actually, um, she she's she's not involved with the father anymore. She's left him. And this is because of this child. And, you know, he patted my head thinking that he would somehow uh, deter the situation and mm-hmm. get them to leave. And actually, they looked down at me and said, oh, so this, this is her child. Um, and he said yes. And at this point, I think he'd realised, oh, no, I shouldn't have revealed that because ah. they also take the children once you do. Um, so my mum 
came out and they they just said we're going to take you in for questioning it's you know not not nothing serious we'll just take you in for questioning um but I think everyone knew what was really going to happen and I have an older brother and so they hid my older brother in the basement and the basement has like a little window opposite the garden gate so he actually saw us being taken away um and so they decided to take my mother away but they decided to take me with her as well and we went and the first prison they took us in was just a normal prison where you had like normal criminals I I, I remember walking in and just people staring like mm. lots of strange people just staring and it was uncomfortable and in that prison they took the adults we were all in the same room but they took them one by one to try and interrogate them and get information out of them and they didn't give anything away and so after that they took us to another prison which I call like an ethnic camp because it was all Kurdish women children and men the men were separated from the women and children um, and on the way, they, you know, we picked up a young, I'd say young man around 18 years old and he was blindfolded and he was just crying and screaming, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. And I mean, he, he's he's dead. That's what they did. They would, especially the young men, they would take them and kill them and execute them. And my grandfather was trying to console him, just trying to reassure him that he he's not going to die, but he knew that he would anyway. They took him off and we never saw him again. And that was the fate for for, for a lot of men. Um, they would be killed, a lot of them, on the spot or in execution style by lining them up. Um, so we were taken to the second prison. And I, I remember that this clearly was coming out and just seeing the prison and seeing like small, I remember small windows and all the women gathered around to the small windows to see who was coming, who was new. Um, my grandfather was separated from us because my paternal grandparents were taken as well. Um, and my grandmother was with me. My grandmother was holding me and my grandmother was the main person that looked after me because my mum was in absolute mm. shock and trauma and angry. And she, she, so she couldn't really, I mean, I always try and imagine myself in my mum's shoes at that time. Mm. I've got a son who's 19, but when he was, you know, four, five, there's no way that I could have gone through what she's gone through. She went through it with two children. So for her at that time, I just remember her being very just numb, numb from life and like not not aware of anything that's going on. She had she had to fight for space for me and my grandma because there was no space in the camp. Everyone was back to back. Um, and then we ended up staying there for about two weeks after two, 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 three weeks after that, they called some family names and ours was on the list. Um, we thought we were being let out, but actually they, I didn't know this at the time because I was too young, but when we went out, all the adults started crying and wailing and screaming. And this was because there was diggers in front of the buses and those diggers were basically for us to be buried. I didn't know that, but but it was a common way that they would kill people. There's so many mass graves in Iraq. It's unbelievable. I think it's one of the countries with the highest number of missing pe people. And it's because of those mass graves. Um, and what they would do at that time, the tactic was, was that they would make sure you saw the shovel and the diggers. Mm. And when you get to your location, they would dig in front of you. So, so it's a slow death and you knew that your death is coming. And then they would line you in the hole and alive. So not killed, alive. And then they would shovel soil over you slowly. Um, so it's a very, very torturous, slow death. Um, anyway, all the screaming and the wailing kind of stopped as soon as people were on the buses because they realised, well, we're going to die now. So it turned into like whispers of prayers. Everyone was reciting the Quran. That's all I remember was just really, really quiet whispers. Um, we halfway through driving the car the, the buses were stopped and the, so at that time you had Kurdish people working for the Iraqi government for Saddam Hussein but then you also had Kurdish people working for the Iraqi government for Kurds so in situations like this it, it 
we, we were basically rescued by them. Um, the bus is stopped and there had been some sort of deal that was made outside because it stopped for a while and then it carried on and then they stopped it again and opened the doors and said, we're Kurdish, we're not going to kill you. We're going to let you go, but you need to disappear as if you're dead because if you're caught again, you'll be killed on the spot. And so they let us go and we managed to, like my grandparents and my mum, we managed to kind of make our way to like a main road. It was on the mountainside somewhere. It's very hard to describe. Mm-hmm. Kurdistan's very mountainous. Um, and my grandfather stopped a taxi and he happened to be one of my grandfather's older students, like previous students. He was a teacher. And he just said, what are you doing in the middle of nowhere with your family? It just doesn't make sense. And at that time, you can't talk to anyone or tell anyone anything. So you just kind of let them... Um, you don't say anything because you can't trust anyone. So he said, just drive us back to the city, sneak us back in, don't say anything, don't ask any questions. Um, we went back, but instead of going back to my mum's parent, like my grandparents' house from my mum's side, um, we went to my mum's sister-in-law, um, stepsister's house, because it's the least place they would have searched as in like searching via family members Mm -hmm. it's the least place they would have searched first and um we walked in and everyone was wearing black everyone was crying it was they were basically mourning our death because news had gone to them that we'd been buried alive so for us to walk in I think was a bit of a shock um but my dad had sent a message that night and said that we need to leave the city and we can't stay there my grandparents decided to stay and my mum decided to leave my older brother because in the eyes of the government, they didn't really know that he existed. And so she thought, well, if anything happens to us, at least he survives. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I remember going to the south of Iraq where my mum had a stepbrother. And because it's an Arab populated region, it was the least likely place for them to search if we didn't go out the house. And my mum spoke Arabic, so it wouldn't be an issue. Uh, I wasn't allowed out because I was four years old and I only spoke Kurdish. So for three months, I had to stay indoors. Um, And I remember just fighting with my cousins quite a lot. Um, And then after that, my mum put her foot down and told my dad, we need to leave this country. We're going to die. Like, there's no Mm. other way. I can't live in hiding like this. So he finally agreed and said, "Okay, I'll meet you in. And at that time, you you had the Iran and Iraq war. So all the bombs that were dropping, they were dropping in rural regions, so all the villages. And that was the only way that we could escape. So we would go from one village to the other. We picked up my brother and then we picked up, like we met in some villages. Sometimes we'd end up staying in villages alone with just fighters. And there would be like two weeks of bomb raids and we couldn't go anywhere. Um, I remember once we were at a a friend's house and they were doing house searches I mean I always think something is definitely protecting me because they were doing house searches and they hid me and my brother in big barrels so there was a barrel of flour barrel of rice so my mum's like right you need to hide in there and they searched every single house and they stopped at that one and said okay we've had enough I thought phew okay we've had another lucky escape um And then we went from village to village and all these villages were all deserted. Like nobody was there because of the bombs that were dropping. So it was mainly just fighters that would have been there. Um, And then we finally managed to sneak into Iran after 12 months of hiding and fleeing in those conditions. And it was at nighttime on horseback. And I'll never forget this because I remember, you know, we were going up the mountain with the horse and I was sitting behind my mum. And the horses went, lifted the two legs up. And I thought, oh, gosh, we're going to fall off this mountain. Um, but we didn't. Uh, we made it there. And in Iran, once we we were there, we had friends, family friends that looked after us. And my dad was going to meet us there. So in the meantime, my dad was still in Kurdistan. And 
um, Saddam Hussein had hired a husband and wife to poison a group of men, and he was on that list. And so the couple were Kurdish, so nobody suspected anything. And food in my culture is just massive. So you, you invite everyone, you overfeed them, and it's, it's just a big, very big thing. So you'd never suspect anyone that invites fighters to be fed. Um, so they laid out a massive feast and it was all the lovely food and like, you know, they don't eat this food all the day, all the time. So it was a massive, massive feast for them mm. to really, um, enjoy. But what they, we have this drink called Mastao and it's, it's like Aidan, it's a yogurt drink. <clears throat> and they put the poison inside the yogurt drink. Um, and I think it was, I can't remember, it was like rat poisoning to take thallium that's it um so you couldn't smell it and you couldn't taste it and two men I think died on the spot and as soon as they died they knew okay we've been poisoned and my dad and two other guys were poisoned critically but they managed to get them to Iran so when they got them to Iran I remember like my dad being brought in his hair was falling out you know he it, it was horrible I think he stayed for one night um, and the lady that we were staying with, she knew how to do like medical ops. So she was keeping an eye on him. Um, but then Amnesty International had heard of the story and decided, right, we are going to, um, we're going to fly my dad and another guy to the UK for medical treatment. And the other guy was flown to France. So that's my childhood. And then after a year, we after a year of waiting for my dad to survive and the papers to kind of be ready, we, we ended up in the UK and I came here at the age of six in 1988. Uh, That's my childhood. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. Can you connect, as you say it, do you feel it or you... It, it, I just can't comprehend that you've lived that. I, so for me... Because I've kind of, um, the first time, the first time I ever retold my story was at the House of Lords. And it, the story behind that is hilarious because we, I used to work in asset management as a digital project manager. And so my life was so completely different. Um, and, you know, corporate workplaces, they do personal development and they make you do these courses and things like that so I thought oh what course do I need and at that time there's a whole new story behind that but I, I wasn't very confident in speaking and I thought I need like a speaking skills presentation skills development course so I joined one and there was about I think six of us in the group um, and Julian was the trainer and he said right the first thing we're going to do is we're going to test everyone to see what your skills are like now. Can you all just get up and talk about something that you do or something that you're passionate about? And I got up and spoke about, because I was doing all the social media stuff. I think I must have spoken about social media like this with my head down and not saying anything. And he said, right, Taban, um, can you talk about a memory, please? Uh, clearly, you're not connecting with social media. Mm. Um, and I was on the spot and I was nervous and I didn't know what memory to think of. And then instantly the memory of being taken to prison, that moment, that small moment from my grandmother's house to the actual prison was so vivid that I, I just stood there and I described it as a journey. And by the end, I'd snapped out of whatever I was doing. And I, I looked at everyone and all their jaws were just, Huh? is that a memory or is that a story or is that real um and Julian asked he said is, is, is that a real memory to ban I said oh yeah yeah that's my childhood so for me it's really difficult because they've all happened and I know the emotions are all stored in there but because I was so young mm. it's very difficult to remember the emotions mm. that go with those memories mm. Um, I think that's why I say I don't know how my mother went through it. My mum, I think, has blocked off a lot of it. So mm. she doesn't want to go there. But as an adult or the older you are, you'll experience more and you'll attach more 
to the memories, like more emotional attachment. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think my age, I don't know. I think because I was quite young, I can't, I can imagine what I felt like. I know what it would have felt like as an adult now, but Mm -hmm. as, but I do remember particular things which are very, very childlike. Like for example, walking into prison I wasn't as a child thinking I'm walking into a prison what's Mm. going on here the first thing I noticed was all the other kids and some of them had got onto like a little roof nook and I didn't understand how they'd got into that roof nook so my eyes instantly went to the kids and I looked at the where they were and I thought how how there's no stairs how have they managed to get there so it's as a child and even now like when we work with the children um obviously there's a lot of trauma faced and there's a lot of trauma stored but actually kids also will just be kids mm. they'll, they'll carry on and for me I think that's why and now I have a purpose to tell my story so I wouldn't just sit here and tell it for for anything mm. I think the only time <clears throat> excuse me my throat <clears> throat> Um, the only time that I was ready to tell my story is when I realized that I could do something good for others Mm -hmm. and that house of lords speech made me realize that because it's the first time that I'd spoken and it's the first time that I told the story in a way where it carried people on a journey and to see people crying and a standing ovation was a big shock to me because for me it's my life Mm. it's what I've experienced I don't I I didn't understand why people would do that but then I realized actually to ban that's where you need to connect with your past and Mm -hmm. do something good and yeah the story of leaving my um the world of finance or the corporate world was also quite touching as well yeah, that was going to be my next question. So you're you're six, and like when, when did you say? I think you were the same age as me. In '88, were you six? Is that what you, you yeah. said? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the next chapter, you're growing up in the UK, going to school, and your whole family are together. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And living a relatively, I mean, it can't be average because of the background that you've had, but yeah. Yeah. Safe, secure life, I'd say. Yeah, uh, and then and then you, well, and then you went. Did you go? Then you ended up in the city. What were you doing in the city of London? Um, so I was working as a digital project manager for an asset management firm. Um, and like I, the, the story behind it, even getting into that. Um, when you arrive here as a diaspora, especially in that era, mm-hmm. it was very hard for, um, I think, parents to kind of disconnect and integrate into a culture that they've been forced to leave Mm. so that's that's very difficult Mm. um but also there's an element to that as a teen growing up there's a whole new level of just confusion um also anger and rejection and like you know what who am I Uh, you're you're neither from there or you're neither from here Mm -hmm. you're kind of in between floating and not really knowing where and I during your teens that's just really amplified um I remember at primary school when we first arrived I couldn't speak English we just picked up words here and there and kids being kids um there we were in the dinner line and this girl turned around and said your dad's Saddam Hussein and I thought you know she was only we were only we we were eight so she wouldn't have known but for me I couldn't verbalize it I couldn't verbalize do you realize what this man has done? Because I know Saddam Hussein very well, and I know my dad, and I could put those two sentences together so I understood what what that meant, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't verbalize anything that I'd experienced. So as a child, I just pushed her. And when I pushed her, she started crying. The The teacher saw me push her, and she could explain to the teacher that I'd pushed her. So I got sent to the back of the line, and I couldn't explain to the teacher what happened so I just Mm. cried and cried but from that moment I decided I'm not really going to talk about my past I'm just going to suppress it I'm going to completely reject my identity and not go there um so in my teens I tried to be like all the other kids in school and just 
was very very rejecting of a lot of things um quite rebellious and like and then you become confused and so for me I think I wanted to win over my parents somehow by doing something traditional so I got married young even though they were against it I thought no this is traditional you're going to be happy and I'm going to do this and I'm ready and all for very very wrong reasons but I got married at a very young age um I'd say around 19 and I had my son when I was 20 Mm. um and I'd you know I'd, I'd been studying during that time but when it was a very abusive marriage and for me to finally pluck up the courage to leave was quite a big taboo in my culture and so by the time I'd left I kind of planned oh actually I need a better job like if I'm gonna survive with just me and my son and it could be just me and my son you know but if I get rejected by everyone else um so I planned to kind of I I ended up working in that role which served really really well um for many many years like that digital project management role just really served for that lifetime um but it wasn't really connected to what I wanted to do Mm -hmm. so when the time came I and this was in 2014 um I it was that talk that I did at House of Lords everyone at work and some people at work came and then there was a press article that was shared around the office and like everyone was quite proud that I'd been there and I'd spoken and um but it what what it triggered in me was I need to be doing something connected to my past I I know I'm meant to be doing this but how do I do it I was still very very you know I wasn't confident quite scared I couldn't really talk to people properly but I'd managed to do that so I thought there must be something in me I can do it um so of all actions, I decided to ask for a meeting with a CEO, a CEO of the asset management firm who I've never had a meeting with, who I've never really had a work. You know, you have some lines of working mm. relationships with people. I nothing. But I thought, no, this. This person is going to be the one that knows, because if he was a visionary to be able to set up what he set up then he'll have the skills to see if I can do it or not. Mm-hmm. So he's the one that I need to ask. That's it. But um, I remember before the meeting, I was so nervous and it dawned on me what I'd, I'd done because he accepted straight away. Like um, we had a meeting in place. I thought, oh my gosh, there's a meeting. What do I do? Uh, and I remember having a meeting with a colleague. Going, I'm absolutely shitting myself. What do I do? <laughs> I, I don't know what to do. Like, um, I've requested this meeting, but is it isn't it kind of weird for me just to ask for career advice <laughs> or life advice? Um, and anyway, I went into that meeting, and I did. I think I started it off with, "I know this is really weird, but I don't actually want to talk about work. I just need some advice. Um, you know what I've done. You know my background a little bit. I feel like I should be doing something else, but I don't know, and I'm I don't know whether." I'm making the wrong decision because I'm quite stable here. And you know. and he just said one sentence and it was, Taban, you're too special for that corner desk. Can you please go and fly? And I thought, wow, okay. I wasn't expecting that. I really, really, really wasn't expecting that. But in that moment, I just remember thinking, okay, he sees something that I don't yet see. I've just got to trust it. And so I left my job and, you know, when you have work dues and you have a drinks party, you have a little thing. So some people knew I left, but it was a big firm. Not everyone knew I left. So when I ended up leaving, going to Kurdistan, I I, um, had got a job with a local foundation there and ISIS had gone into the region by this point. And so a BBC journalist had got in touch with me to go on the helicopters that we were delivering aid to because you had 30,000 Yazidis like trapped on a mountain and ISIS had completely hemmed them. I was completely oblivious to all of this going on on the ground. I just came from the city. Um, So for me to have left there and then the following few weeks, I um, 
end up on the BBC screen across the floor. I'm on a helicopter driving over, uh, flying over ISIS, delivering aid and like nearly dying. And all these people were, so I just, my email just exploded. Like, Van, where are you? What the hell are you doing? Um, but yeah, that was the start of the journey. Wow. I mean, you don't do things by halves, do you? No. <laughs> if you're no. going to do it, get yourself over there. So then, yeah, you got you, you do that. And then at what point does, does Lotus Flower begin to form in your mind and then in reality? So I spent, um, so the work that we did was very, very front lines. For about 15 months, I worked very closely with the humanitarian crisis that was unfolding. Uh, we did endless aid distributions, like lots of dangerous ones. Um, I worked a lot with the women and girls that were um, taken, imprisoned, raped, enslaved by ISIS. Um, and after 15 months, I had to come back to the UK for my son and studies and so on. But when I came back, I felt completely disconnected from everything. I couldn't go back to a normal job. I could not apply for a normal nine to five. I even tried. And I remember, I've never failed an interview in my life, but I remember going into those interviews on purpose, trying to sabotage it. Like, don't hire me. <laughs> um, so I, I knew that there was something. And I remember going to the final, final interview and making it a, just like a sign from the universe. And I said, if I don't get this job, I'm setting up the Lotus Flower. Like it's, it's a clear sign for me to go and set it up. Um, and everything that could go wrong went wrong in that interview. Well, not in a bad way, but you were meant to do a digital presentation, for example. My printer didn't work. I ended up printing out my no my laptop wasn't working so I couldn't do a laptop display for a digital role so I ended up printing the presentation and putting it on a massive Muji frame I've still got the picture I walked into the interview and went I'm sorry but my laptop didn't work so it's my presentation and it was a Muji frame with all my presentation in um the meet the interview went really well um, and the head of department called me later on and we ended up speaking for about an hour on the phone, just speaking about life and everything. And she said to Ban, honestly, whatever it is, you're meant to be doing something else, but we were about to hire you, but I just have a feeling there's something else out there for you. And I'm there going, so do I. <laughs> um, and then I just I just set it up in my living room with absolutely no money. I had, you know, I had the experience from the ground. I've got my project project management experience. Um, so I thought I've got transferable skills. I've got passion. I can make this happen. Let's figure out how we get money. And that's where it just started with absolutely no money in my living room with no one, just me. And then slowly it's grown to where it is. And and. Tell us a bit more about the work that, that, that the charity do. So we, we support women and girls impacted by conflict and displacement. And we have like centres inside predominantly, I'd say, refugee camps. We mm -hmm. do have them in cities to kind of integrate with host community and those impacted by conflict. But we've got these centres, which we realise are the safe social spaces that women and girls need in camps. Mm -hmm. um, they are a vulnerable group and therefore what we noticed was that the men and boys were able to go out the camps, leave the camps, do as they pleased, mm. but the women and girls needed an excuse to leave their cabins or tents. So we thought, okay, we'll give them an excuse. So we set up this centre, which was only for women and girls, and started implementing projects. And we've got pillars where we implement projects, which is health and safety education and livelihoods, uh, peace building and human rights. And so we started implementing these projects and realized it's very, very popular. It's really, really well attended. It's a definite, definite massive need. Um, and so, for example, projects are like under health and safety, we will do mental health support. So we have psychologists that provide um, support. Uh, we do art therapy, music therapy. We do yoga, meditation. 
um, under education, we do adult literacy, which is extremely popular because a lot of the women and girls in those camps have never really had access to schools because they were from rural regions. Mm -hmm. And so now they do for the first time, which is amazing. Um, and then we do English language, computer, so any educational courses that will help them build those skills. Under livelihoods, we launched the first women's business incubator program in the Middle East. So, you know, we saw all these competitions for like women in business outside. Thought, hold on, these camps are like 20,000 people, 14,000 people. They're like small towns. Mm they need businesses why don't mm. we train the women to run these businesses so what we did was we ran a competition for women to kind of apply and uh, the ones that got through we provide training a small grant and then help and monitoring um with their business and some of the businesses like it's just amazing seeing it they're like supermarkets restaurants um mobile top-up cafes um there's, there's so many and it's it's really, really nice to actually see that we've we've helped them build a skill that they can take away anywhere. It's not something mm. that just within the camp. So wherever they go, they can start that um, business. We have, for example, Boxing Sisters, which is a boxing program. We train women boxers to train to teach boxing in our centres, which is phenomenal. Um, we've got um, so for that, Kathy Brown, who was the first female boxer was the trainer for that so she's gone out and trained the women to lead the classes um we have a cafe that's run by the women for the women so asma khan who is a chef and restaurateur from um darjing express and she supported that program and just the main aim of our centers is to help women and girls to heal learn and grow Mm. And that's it. And we've realized actually recently you need to carry the the community with you. And that's including boys and men. So mm. we've started including boys and men into our programs. And it's mainly, for example, our trauma project, which is up for the charity awards, which is amazing. But it's realizing that actually there's a lot of trauma that's held with men and boys in the camps and there's nobody supporting them. So, for example, it, it's a vicious cycle, you know, when when men and boys aren't supported you have higher rates of for example gender-based violence so we kind of try and go to the root of some of the issues that the women and girls face in the camps to try and support them and that does include bringing in the men and boys into Mm -hmm. programs Um, we've got an initiative called peace sisters which is really successful and that's training um, women to become peace mediators within their community because peace is often like from the top level, we've actually gone, no, we're going to build it from the ground level because that's where you need it at first. That's how you need actually relationships and societies to work together and build together and communities. Um, so that's been a really successful program. We, we have a lot and we do a lot. I think since 2016, when we registered, we have um, supported, I would say, nearly 30,000 women directly mm, which is wow. a lot yeah. um uh, and indirectly the numbers go up um so it's it's been phenomenal to have started it in the living room with nothing and no staff to now where we are is absolutely amazing but also as a small organization we're always like looking for supporters to help us sustain we've proved that there's a need there's a massive need and actually there's an even greater need because in future it's not just going to be refugees and um, people displaced from conflict and war Mm -hmm. it will be environmental uh, displacement as well so sadly our our services are going to be needed and to actually put women and girls um, safety and growth at the forefront in, in situations like that is really important because I truly believe you know the more skills that you build, the more opportunities that you mm-hmm. provide in communities where you have vulnerabilities, that's where the biggest growth happens. I mean, I, from my own experience, despite what I've been through, I think my resilience and perseverance to carry on and do something has been something that's 
pushed me forward mm -hmm. and I believe that exists in those communities so it's it's just it's beautiful to see storytelling sisters we have we train women and girls to become photographers and they tell the most oh the, the photographs that they take so we hire them to take our photographs and mm -hmm. it's just yeah it's a long list of things that we do yeah but that's it there is no single thing that's helpful it's a collection of stuff that's helpful and as you're talking, like one of the questions that I had written down was, what do you think like the, a, a huge misconception about war is? And 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 I, I love that thing you said about how peace doesn't come from the top down. Of course, you need to instill peace right in the heart of that amongst the communities. But yeah, I guess it's front of mind for my audience because we've we've been confronted with the, the crisis in Ukraine, which is, is a complicated subject in itself because there have been wars going on through all of our lifetimes but when you see that play out what do you think that, that there's something that we might not be understanding about that I think the, so I, I kind of feel like I've got the advantage of being in both worlds mm. to be able to understand it um, and a great example is when I worked in the city and I went back to help during a crisis. I was so disconnected from the two, it, it, just worlds apart. Mm -hmm. And it's because I think we, we end up living in our, um, in our own little world, feeling quite safe, which is, you know, understandable. There's no direct threat here. So you wouldn't feel it. I think because it's not close here, you feel kind of safe that it's, it's happening far away. It's not happening to us. So it's not, it, that emotional connection's not there. I think anyone that's experienced war, anyone that's seen it, and it doesn't mean just the people that are from that region. I mean, journalists, I mean, aid workers, mm -hmm. I mean, people that volunteered or, you know, anyone that's experienced it from that level will completely understand the destruction it has on so many levels. Um, and I mean destruction from uh, not just the individual level, the emotional, mental, uh, physical, but also um, community ties. You know, you, you, how do you... It's taken a lot for us to kind of rebuild some of those communities. Mm -hmm. What happened, for example, to the Yazidi community, they lost a lot of trust with their Muslim neighbours or their Arab neighbours because they're the ones that kind of told ISIS, who actually next door neighbor is um, Yazidi. So how do you rebuild those connections? And I think, I think the misconception is that, that war is kind of far away. It's not going to get to us. But mm. actually, realistically, it could happen to anyone mm. at any time. It could be you. It really can be. I know we've got safety here and... Mm -hmm everything's nice but you could find yourself in a, a situation where you are displaced even if it's not from war you know we might get flooded in a few years mm -hmm. in the UK nobody knows we might mm -hmm. have to go to another country and leave so that situation could happen to anyone and I think the misconception is I think we we feel very safe and it's not happening to us but it even if it's far away, there's still a ripple effect. It's still going to happen. It's still impacting us. Mm. Um, and I think that I would say that's the main one for me, um, being between both worlds and having experienced safety here and then going back there, you realise actually you're not really that safe. It could happen to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, and also as you were speaking, the 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 things that help solve that are the things that help solve it. Help, you know, supporting businesses, giving mental health support, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, they're not these dis, these abstract things. They're the, they're the things that we completely can yeah. understand as well. And I, I think yeah. that's sometimes an important miss part of the puzzle that yeah. that it's not so abstract. Yeah, and also, like, that, that's a really important point. I think this idea of, and it's really bad the way, you know, some of the media and government policies here have skewed that, that 
refugees are here to take everything and you know it's this labeling of it's terrible because actually uh you've been forced out of your home you've experienced so much trauma (laughs) what you actually need is some mental health support Mm. and some way of getting back to a normal life Mm -hmm. asap if i had a business back home and i was forced to leave because it was bombed i'd like to wherever i go i'd like to be able to be in safety and set up my business again, mm. right? So there, the misconception is that we, when we f- flee from war or, you know, we're helpless and we don't know anything or we don't, you know, that that, that I, I believe is wrong. I, I mm. think there's so much, so much strength in people that have, strength and resilience in people that have experienced war um, because you've experienced something that not a lot of people have. And Mm. if you've managed to come out of that and you're still kind of functioning, Mm. that's absolutely amazing. Mm. That, That strength inside of you is a skill that not many people have. And so I think it's realizing those strengths. So I would say helping people, supporting people through mental health support, but also like helping them learn how to stand up on their own two feet. That, yeah. you know that's all we want really um yeah. of course I remember when we first came to the country yes we were given support because we we didn't have anything mm-hmm. we, we literally left with our clothes and that was it so we didn't have anything and when we arrived here at that time I remember you know we were taking we we had this family we had a Christian family that would take us every weekend to help teach us English and we've got some of the fondest memories and so many Christmases that we spent with them um and you know yes we definitely needed help at the start but now I'd say myself my brothers my sisters my family oh my gosh we've given back to the country 10 times over in terms of like working taxes doing Mm -hmm. this so you will eventually like you're building you're building your future. And I think that's how we should see it. Um, and I believe that everyone has that strength and that capability. Mm-hmm. It's just providing the right opportunities and opening the right doors. I think it's so important to remember. I'm also interested then how the rest of your life shapes up. When, you, when you've, I'm always fascinated when people have been through like the most imaginable things, how you then deal with like more day-to-day trauma or more like day-to-day difficult things does your mind go well well it's you know this was the extreme this is less extreme or do you find yourself stumbling in in those situations I think um everything's in context um you'll still you'll still kind of get annoyed by the day-to-day things or be upset I still get down days good days but what I've noticed is um, the more work I've done on myself to understand myself mm-hmm. and my trauma, not bringing it to life every time, but understanding it, the more it helps me. Because for me, like just retracing back to my illness, I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's got something to do with it I've realized that from the moment I was born not even at the age of four because I was Mm -hmm. born into a war even maybe when I was in my mother's womb Mm -hmm. my body has been in fight and flight Mm -hmm. it's it's it doesn't even know the concept doesn't even understand the concept of rest like it, it 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 doesn't it's never functioned like that Mm. from the moment we were born to experiencing that and then like constant traumas in my life have 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 maintained my body in a flight fight and flight mode Mm -hmm. so for me I've had to go okay that was that that was then what do I need to do to retrain it to be in rest mode Mm -hmm. so I definitely need to teach my body to learn how to be in rest mode so for me I think on a daily basis remembering that my body does that and it only knows how to do that I have to actively do things to try and make it rest Mm. and that will be from you know daily ritual routine practices therapy you know I've I've had therapy and therapy is very important and I say therapy only really works when you're ready for it because 
I wasn't ready for it until 2018, believe mm. it or not. <laughs> so that's many, many, many years went by mm-hmm. for me to actually go, no, actually, I think I need therapy. Um, so recognizing that and implementing that and seeing what your body needs, I think for me, not just from an illness point of view, but even from like a emotional, mental, even career, life, passion, purpose, whatever it is, I think you have to know your body inside and out for you to be able to make those choices um, and make sure that you're in alignment. When you're in alignment with those, then then things happen. And I've realized that the more that I try and practice those daily active rituals that keep me in the rest mode, the better I am. If I come mm. off track, then things go um mm. It, it, it's not as nice um but that's not also it's, it's accepting that some days will just be bad I've just accepted that some days will just be bad mm. that's it it will be um and it might be because of something's triggered from the past or something's happened but I don't carry I try not to let it come into my day-to-day for me I've reframed it in my brain I've reframed it in a way where I feel like, no, look at that. You've been through that. If you've managed to come out of that, then you can come out of this. Like Mm -hmm. this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, I've I've reframed it in that way. And I think that's that's definitely helped me. I think that's such an interesting point that you make because the body, what is it, it likes to exist in, is it homeostasis where it wants to go back? It's very, very, very skilled at trying to get itself back to what it believes to be its norm. And so, yeah, the idea that you have to fight to take it out of a trauma response constantly is, is, is a fascinating one and that becomes the legacy. But actually, bizarrely, if that is its legacy and you have to fight to to correct yourself, that becomes a really good guiding light for your existence doesn't it yeah yeah and also I think for me taking my pain and turning it into a form of power and purpose Mm -hmm. has completely helped I've just thought actually you've gone through all this pain there's absolutely no way I'm allowing you to go through all this pain for no reason yeah so you're going to do something with it at least and for me I, I think giving back has been part of my therapy um I think mental health support is really really important I've actually set up another charity called Therapy Beyond Borders and that is to specifically help um refugees human trafficking survivors domestic violence uh survivors uh, to, to allow them to have pro bono therapy um so that's in the starting phase but they're all connected and I think I've used my experience of pain and seeing actually where can I make it easier for somebody else and you know if 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 I was no longer in this world what would I want to leave and it is those things is to mm-hmm. leave ways that make life easier for people that are very vulnerable and what a legacy that is I mean it feels like you've lived many lives in your yeah. already so you kind of sit here and go yeah this is the path that I'm following but what on earth well what on earth does the next five years or decade look like well I, I know I know exactly um I I've put all my love and effort and hard work I'll be putting them into these charities to make them um sustainable and independent and you know I think one thing with charities a lot of people that set them up need to learn is that you're doing it for other people so you have to set it up in a way that it lives beyond you and it's not attached to you so for me I'm almost setting these things up to be detached from me yeah so from in in, let's say a decade from now they will be detached from me they'll be absolutely thriving and they'll be helping thousands if not millions of people and that's what it should be doing and for me I want to be in my little van traveling around the world with my dog (laughs) there you go that's that's exactly what's gonna happen I hope that all comes to fruition but it's so true any whether that be our children or the work that we do you you're always um raising it to to function brilliantly without you it's a strange thing isn't it yeah yeah that's a great example yeah off you go 
pour, pour all this into you and then one day you'll uh, and you've got a 19 year old so you're you're really beginning to see the start of that oh well <laughs> or not <laughs> they're not this generation maybe we uh, they'll, they'll be around a bit lo- longer i've got two questions before yeah. i end number one where can people find you and importantly where can they find the charity um so they can find me or i'm mostly on instagram having a bit of a break at the moment so it's taban Sharesh, so just mm-hmm. my name mm-hmm. um and the uh, lotus flower is lotus the lotus f we couldn't get the flower oh. um which is annoying and then on the website it's www.thelotusflower.org um and we're definitely looking for supporters and like people to help us i think for me what i've realized and my background is um you know, where people have had the opportunity to have, you know, parents build up networks and have all these networks and connections and things. I've got a great network, but I think it would have been so much better and greater had I not been ill for the last few years. Um, so we're definitely looking for connectors, for anyone that can connect us with people. Um, it's not just money donations. You know, I, I think there's a massive value in people that can connect us to people or organizations that they mm-hmm. know so that would be great as well great yeah so true it doesn't always have to be financial and I, you never know who knows who do you? yeah you sometimes have to I'm really learning that you sometimes have to voice it in order to possibly have yeah. it come to fruition and lastly if you could have an honest conversation with one person who would it be and what would you say I don't know if I should say this say it pretty Patel what the F you doing? (laughs) I think I think that would be it. I'm I'm very angry at the policies that she's kind of creating, and just I don't understand it. Like for some for someone who would have come from Mm. immigrant parents who've kind of migrated over, I just don't understand how you could be in a position to kind of not allow others. That that it doesn't make sense to me. Mm. Maybe that's a negative. That's a negative conversation. A positive conversation. I oh, who would I have a positive conversation with? Um, there's so many. My brain's gone blank. You don't have. To, think, it doesn't. Ha- it doesn't have to be neg- positive anyway. But if you've got a positive one that sprung to mind, share it. I think. Oh, who would it be? There's so many. My brain's gone blank. That's I think right. at the moment I'm like, we're trying to figure out all these policies and um, we're so ingrained in what's going on at the moment. It's, it is my only question that yeah. revolves around in my head is I don't understand why Pretty Patel's doing this. Like, I don't understand the policy behind it. Mm-hmm. From a person, I think it's a very personal question because... I've personally experienced a lot of what I've experienced. And so mm-hmm. I've decided to help people that are experiencing what I've experienced. Yes. So for someone who has experienced parents coming from another country to stop other people from coming into a country, that I don't understand. Mm. Um, and I think I would stay with a positive. I'd leave that with a conversation because then I could have lots of people around for my dinner table that would be positive she wouldn't be invited to my dinner table no unless she came up with a really good answer well, yeah. no, I think that, I think it's absolutely fair enough to ask that question and to yeah and you're coming at it from every side of the fence you know you're, you're you've got a good comprehension of why you're asking that yeah so yeah let's go with her let's try and make that happen maybe <laughs> maybe you know you put this out in the universe you'll find yourself having that having that chat thank you so much thank um, you. I haven't done a lot of interviewing. I've done a lot of listening because your story is extraordinary but um, and the work that you're doing is so important. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I'm actually recording this um, outro retrospectively, but since recording this episode, I have thought so often of Taban and her stories and in particular some visuals around the really difficult times of it. And I keep thinking if, if that stayed with me, having only heard her retell it, I can't really comprehend having lived through it and it's one of those conversations which I've really used as a barometer for my own life 
even when things have felt challenging and chaotic, I remind myself that people like Taban lived through those experiences and, and don't just live through them, she's come out thriving. It's, it's almost incomprehensible, but also important to remember that there are people all over the world living that kind of reality right now. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. It was, yeah, it was a transformative conversation. I'm really grateful for Tabon for her time. I've also been stuck with the idea that she feels that some of her chronic illness are the result of her body keeping hold of that experience, which, as a total aside, I really recommend a book called The Body Keeps the Score. It's very famous, but it is exactly about that, about our body being the, uh, the sponge for everything that we experience. Thank you so much for being here. That is another episode of But Why Wrapped. If you want to get hold of me, if you've got any idea for guests or feedback on an episode, I'm really, really, really keen to hear from you. That's a lot of reallys. Um, the Instagram is butwhy underscore podcast or I'm on email butwhy at clemmytelford.com. I'm now off to go and visit my house slash building site where was saying to producer Steve just beforehand that I often have to play the bad cop. Then we'll visit the site and just be like, yeah, everything looks great. And I'll walk in and be the person who says, no, that light fitting isn't where we want it or that paint colour isn't working. So yeah, off to go and be the bad cop, which is not a fun role to be, but somebody's got to be it. Wishing you a lovely day and please do join us next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.